Our scripture reading this morning comes from three passages. The first passage is Matthew 19, 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Second passage is 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The third and final passage comes from Revelation 19, 5 through 8. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen, church. Our God is awesome. Do you agree with that? Well, good morning, all. If you're here this morning, you're a regular attender, good morning to you. If you're a visitor with us this morning, good morning to you. If you're uh, dialing in online, dialing in, sure, that's the right way to say it. If you're here joining us online, good morning to you as well. This morning, we're going to finish up our mini-series on marriage, family, and singleness. Today, our topic is singleness. Now, why? Why would I want to speak on that? Why would I want to talk about being single? Well, as I've said over the past couple of weeks, these topics are foundational to us. Being married, coming from or being in a family, or being single. These are all foundational, meaning they, are, they affect our identity. They affect who we are, and they affect how we conduct ourselves. A single person will conduct their life differently than a married person. That's just a statement of fact. And if you want an example of that, take leaving the house. Yes. If you're single and you want to up and leave the house and do something, more easily you just up and do it. There's relatively, although there could be a few things, but relatively nothing holding you back. If you're married, and take that a step further, if you're married with children, forget about it. 
no, I'm, I'm kidding. You have responsibilities. You have people depending on you, and you try to get out the door, and it takes this, that, and the other. And if you're trying to get the whole family out the door, that's an ordeal. Okay, so that's a silly example. What about a more serious thought? How does a single person or a married person, how does that affect our spiritual lives? How does God want us to view singleness? And that's really the question that I want to deal with in this sermon. How does God want us to view singleness? You know, if you're a teenager or a 20-something or a 30-something or 40-something or 50-something, however old you are and you're single, how does God want you to view that? How does God want you to look at your life in light of the gospel, in light of who he is, in light of who you are in Christ, and live as a single person? And a final reason to preach on this topic is this. Throughout the series, I've been referring to Genesis 2.18, which reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I shared two weeks ago that this verse is about the creation of woman and the creation of marriage. And as a single person, you might read that verse and think to yourself that you're incomplete, that you're only half. You might think that part of you is missing. And I'm here to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, he was not implying that Adam was incomplete. And I know that sometimes we, we say that mushy phrase to our mate, you know, you complete me, baby. You know, we say things like that. It's meant to be tender. It's meant to be a sweet nothing. It's meant to melt our spouse's heart. But really, and I talked about this a couple weeks ago, spouses do not complete us. Spouses complement us. God and God alone completes us. When God said it was not good for man to be alone, he was communicating the importance of the helper, Eve, to the man. He was not implying that man, or woman for that matter, was incomplete. Marriage is good and wonderful and important, and most people get married, and most people should get married, but it isn't meant for all. God created the helper for the man, and I think that we can glean something from that. We can admit something from that. that the, we can admit this. Singleness is hard. Some of you are single now, and you can testify to that. Some of you had extended time as a single person. You can testify to that. Singleness is hard, and I want to acknowledge that. No, you're not incomplete. You are a complete person. You are a whole person. But a single person does not have that special helper, and that makes singleness hard. So let me encourage all of you, first the married people in this room, those watching online, don't check out. Just because this sermon is geared towards single people doesn't mean there's not something here for you. God's word is relevant to all. Don't check out. And I've said this over the past couple weeks. I'm going to say it again. You might be thinking, Pastor, you're not single. What do you know to say to single people? And you're right, I'm not. I haven't been for a long time. But as I've said the past couple of weeks, I'm approaching these topics not as a qualified man, but with the authority that comes from God's word. So first things first, let's dive in and let's define singleness. Now, I had to ask myself this week, do I really need to do that? 
I mean, we all in this room, we know what a single person is. We know what that means. But I have defined marriage, and I have defined family, and I do want to put a definition on singleness. I think it's important that we are on the same page about what we're talking about, and a definition is a good place to start. So here's your definition of singleness. Singleness is not being in a covenant of marriage with another person. You might think that's obvious, but think about the ramifications of that. If you're not in a covenant of marriage with another person, you don't have that commitment, so you should never act like you're in that commitment with anyone else. Until you say, I do, you should not act like you are in that covenant with anyone else. Singleness is not being in a covenant of marriage with another person. With that definition in mind, how should we view singleness biblically? Here's your point. First point, singleness is a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God. Our first passage today is Matthew 19, 10 through, 11, 10 through 12. And I'm going to read it again. Jesus, or the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he, this is Jesus, said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made themselves, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, coming out of the context of this passage, we're in a, a discussion here in Matthew 19. Jesus has been talking about divorce. He's been talking about the severity of divorce, the restrictions of divorce. And after he gets through that discussion, his disciples get to the point where they just throw up their hands and, it's better not to marry. Think about all the severity and these restrictions and all this. It's just better not to marry. And if you stop and think about it, that's the way we often are as people. We just swing to extremes, don't we? I'm either going to do this or I'm going to do this, and we just kind of think one way or another, and that's what's going on there. But Jesus points out, no, that's not necessarily the case. From our text, he says, not everyone can receive this saying, referring back to what the disciple says, that it's better not to marry. He says, not everybody can receive that. Not everybody can live that way. Not everybody can be a single person. And that backs up what I just said a couple minutes ago. Singleness is hard. It's not meant for everyone. Jesus then goes into this explanation of eunuchs, and that might seem a little confusing, so I want to break that down to you. He says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. In other words, there are some born with the inability to procreate. They were born that way. It's a birth defect of some kind. And then he says, Others have been made eunuchs by men. In other words, that ability was taken away. And that often happened in this day and age with servants who were to serve a master, to be totally devoted to the master. Sometimes that happened as strange as that might occur, uh, sound to us today. And then Jesus says, and there are eunuchs have, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to clarify, in no way should we take Jesus' words here to mean some form of self-mutilation. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus used exaggerated speech in other words. He told us, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. But he wasn't literally saying, take out your eye. What he's saying here is that there are people who choose to behave like a eunuch in order to focus on the kingdom of heaven. See, it's a matter of choice here, not a matter of mutilation. In other words, they choose to remain single to devote themselves to the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. And Jesus wraps up the statement by saying, let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. In other words, it's not for everyone. 
He's saying, there are some who are able to live the single life, yes. And in other words, and he said it in here, to whom it is given, singleness is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift given by God. Some have the capacity and the self-control to live lives of singleness. Paul actually restates this in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. He says, I wish that all were as myself, that is, being single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So if you're single right now, that's a gift. And it needs to be viewed that way because that's the way the Bible presents it. And by gift, let me clarify, by gift I mean an ability given by God for the purpose of building others up. A gift, whenever the Bible talks about gifts, we talk about spiritual gifts, we talk about gifts of teaching, preaching, hospitality, administration, all kinds of things. When the Bible talks about those, it's talking about something that's given to a person by God as a means to build others up. In other words, our gifts are not meant to be used selfishly on ourselves. They're meant to be used for others. I want to acknowledge singleness doesn't always feel like a gift. Would anyone in this room agree with that statement? Singleness does not always feel like a gift. Some of you are single and you are content with that. Great. Others of you are single and you struggle because you long to be married. Sometimes gifts don't feel like gifts. Here's an illustration. Let's just, hypothetically speaking, a father gives his teenage daughter a gift. And she's so excited. She opens up this package. She can't wait to see what's inside. And she opens it up, and it's a can of pepper spray. And her reaction would be like, thanks, Dad. Not a necklace, not earrings, not something nice and pretty. You give me a can of mace. Wonderful. But then say, a couple weeks later, she's attacked. And because of that can of mace spray, she was able to get away safely. Didn't seem like a gift, but it ended up saving her life. And sometimes gifts don't feel like gifts. Singleness may not feel like a gift to you, but trust me, the Bible calls it a gift. Last week I shared a verse. I want to come back, with, back to it. It's Isaiah 56, 4 and 5. It says this, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He says to those, specifically to eunuchs, let's just say in our day and age, to the singles, let's say this, those who keep God's Sabbath, in other words, those singles who follow God, who follow after his word, he will give a house and a monument. In other words, he will give rewards. And he says these rewards are better than sons and daughters, better than families. What are these rewards? Well, hang on, because we're going to come back to that. We'll get to that near the end of the sermon. But my point is this, singleness is a gift and it's meant to be used to edify the church. So what do we do with everything I just said? We embrace our marital status. We embrace where we are right now in life because that's what God has ordained. If you're married, likely you're married because God led you down that path unless you did something to drastically disobey him. Likely you're married because God led you down that path. 
If you're single, unless you drastically disobeyed him, likely you're single because God has led you down that path. Whichever it is, embrace it. Embrace where the Lord has you now. Single people, God has you single for now. That might change, yes, but God has you single for a reason. Embrace it. If singleness is a gift, then embrace it. You might ask, how can I embrace my singleness? I would say this, by embracing your Savior. Recognize that you have time that married people don't, quite frankly. Devote that time to Jesus. How can you utilize your singleness to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? How can you use the time that you have that others may not to grow as a disciple in Jesus Christ? I would challenge you, think through that. Evaluate how you spend your time and spend it wisely. Added to that, if singleness is a gift that's meant to be used for others, for the church, then ask yourself, how could God want to use me in the church? What might he want me to do with my singleness in the church? Lean, or learn rather, learn to love the church as your family, single person. And also this, if God has led us down this path of either being married or single, then I'm talking to everyone in the room, let's not despise each other because of their marital status. Let me explain. I have heard people say, and I'm going to admit to you, I have used such foolish words. I've said things like this. You know, they don't understand they're single. I've said that. And you know what that is? It's a form of despising that person. It's a form of putting that person down. It's a form of me even comparing myself to them. It's a judgment. It's not loving them as God's word calls us to do. And I've heard this from married people, and I've heard this from single people. Back and forth, they don't understand these, this kind of talk. And that's not loving one another. So let me encourage you, and I'm speaking to myself here. Let's refrain from that kind of thinking, refrain from that kind of talking, and refrain from that kind of attitude because it's not loving. We should never compare our situation with someone else's. I once heard a speaker say, comparison is the thief of joy. And it is. If we dig a little deeper we might find that that offhand comment that I just said, that private joke, whatever, that actually might come from a heart of jealousy or a heart of contempt. So I'm just challenging all of us. Let's be careful in our attitudes toward one another. Singleness is a gift. Here's your second point. Singleness should not be wasted. Singleness should not be wasted. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your individual devotion to the Lord. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is laying out all kinds of principles for marriage and divorce. If you read that whole chapter, it's all about marriage and divorce and different uh, topics within that. And within this context, in this short passage, verses 32 through 35, Paul is addressing the problems and anxieties that come with marriage. Now, note that Paul is not denying marriage is wonderful. 
He's not denying that marriage is a God-given relationship, but he is expressing a truth. Married people are divided in their ability to be devoted to the Lord. He's not condemning married people for that. He's simply stating a fact. There are limitations that come with being married that aren't there for those who are single. In verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. That is, the anxieties that naturally come with marriage. Those who are single don't have to worry about the concerns that come from being married. As married people, you have committed to that person, and God expects you to, be fill that, to fulfill that commitment. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to submit to the husbands. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. There is a divided interest between the Lord and your spouse when you're married. You can't be just fully devoted to the Lord. That is fully devoted to ministry. Now being, let me clarify here, being fully devoted to your husband, being devoted to your wife, that is being devoted to the Lord because it is being obedient to him. I'm not denying that. But at the same time, Paul relates that being single, one can be free from that concern and more devoted to the things of the Lord, to the things of ministry. They aren't pulled in different directions, so to speak. They can be free to a certain degree. Now, sadly, we have examples of this marriage versus ministry tug from history. John Wesley was the great Methodist leader in the 1700s, and he was married to Mary Wesley. And history tells us it was an awful marriage. John Wesley, for his part, he was not an attentive, he was not a loving husband. Mary was pretty vindictive. And though he faithfully preached the gospel, he was not a good husband. And you could make the argument that he should not have gotten married. Now, that was ultimately, of course, between John, Mary, and the Lord. But if we look at history, we could logically come to that conclusion. You could say, Wesley would have done better. He would have been a better representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ had he not been married. So what's the point I'm trying to make with all this? That, what, that Paul had reasons to say, but the ma married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. To be a good spouse, you have to be devoted both to the Lord and to your spouse, and that is difficult. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. So how am I relating all of this to the point the point was, singleness should not be wasted. How does all this relate? A challenge, this challenge. Single people, single people realize this. Because you are not married, you don't have that divided interest pulling at you. You can and should devote yourself to the Lord. Don't waste your singleness on doing whatever you want. You know, there's an attitude in our world that promotes singles to live it up. With just a quick Google search, I found several ways that the world advises singles to use their time. And among these were, were these. Well, among those, that list was this. Take yourself out on a date. Commit to yourself. Pick up some hobbies. Now, let me point out something. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life. There's nothing wrong with going out and being by yourself and enjoying life. There's nothing wrong with picking up a hobby and enjoying it. I'm not saying anything wrong with that. But the world focuses on those things. It makes them ultimate things. It's a very self-focused mentality. And I'm challenging you to focus on the Lord. How do we do that? How do we not waste our singleness? Don't get so wrapped up in your freedom and in your time that you fail to devote energy to the Lord. And that, that looks like this. Make it a priority to be in his word. Make it a priority to be, get involved in a small group. Avail yourself to serve in one or more capacities in the church. Invest time in 
other functions throughout the week where you can be around unbelievers and be a witness. Don't just stay at home and watch TV and play video games. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those. If you need a night of the week where you need to build into yourself, fine. But how much time are you spending on yourself? What does God want you to do with your time? That's really the question we're after. What does God want me to do with my time? How else can singles not waste their singleness? One thing that is on the minds of many, not all, but many single people is marriage. And rightfully so. I believe a single person should be asking, does God have marriage in my future? How should I go about pursuing that? And so I just want to give a few thoughts on this. First, be open with God on the issue of marriage. That goes for all. Some of you singles long to be married, and others of you might not. In fact, some of you might even resist the idea. But to both of you, I would say this. Be careful not to cross the line into idolatry. What do I mean by that? Singles who long to get married can make marriage an idol. They can let that longing within become so strong that marriage becomes the only thing, the ultimate thing. And as wonderful as marriage is, and I'm here as a testimony to tell you that it is wonderful, it's not the one and only thing that satisfies our longings. God satisfies our longings. So be open to marriage, absolutely. Pursue relationships with the question, could this person be the one God has for me? Yes, but don't make an idol out of it. Find your satisfaction in God, not in a future marriage partner. And to those of you who think, marriage is not in my future, I don't even want to think about it, let me just say this. Be open to what God may have for you. Don't waste your singleness or don't use your singleness as an idol. Don't be so attached to the idea of being single that it becomes the thing that you depend on for satisfaction. Again, only God satisfies. Pursue him and his plans for you. And while I'm on this topic, can I give you just a few practical thoughts on dating and relationships? Just a few. First, date with the intention of pursuing a person for marriage. In other words, date a person looking at them as a potential spouse. Don't date for just social fun. I'm not saying don't have fun on the date. That's part of it. Have fun on a date, absolutely. But don't make social fun, casual dating, don't make that the thing. Don't make that the goal. Date to discover the person. Date to discover the person. Could this person be your future spouse? Learn about the person. See their gifts. See their passions. See their goals. Do they complement your own? Remember, we talked about that. A marriage should complement one another. Would this person complement you well? Would you complement that person well? And of course, the number one question you should always ask is this person a Christian? That should be number. You shouldn't even go on a date if they're not a Christian. Believers do not date non-believers. And I don't care how attractive they are. I don't care how fun they might be. I don't care how much they might get you. I don't care how compatible you seem to be. Don't marry a non-believer. None of those things matter if they're not a believer. And if you pursue a relationship with a non-believer, I promise you it will end in deep heartache because you're not on the same wavelength. You're alive in Christ. They're dead in their sins. 
You are a new creation. They are not. Hopefully they will become one, but they're not. Don't do it. And don't date with a thought of I could witness to that person. 99 times out of 100, that ends bad. Secondly, be attracted to someone's character. Most people have a tendency to date someone they are physically attracted to, and there's nothing wrong with physical attraction, but if you base your relationship on that, you're headed toward a world of hurt. What happens when someone more physically attractive comes along, for you or for them? What happens when the attraction fades with age? You might think you're something good to look at now, but that ain't going to last promise. If you're not deeply attracted to a person's character, then you're going to remain surface-based in your relationships, and eventually it will crumble. Who is the person behind the appearance? That's what you should be asking. Look for character qualities that line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But don't just look for those qualities in others. Pursue those qualities for yourself. Develop that fruit in yourself. And how do I do that? Christ first. Christ first always. One more thing I want to say about this matter, and I know that you know this. The single people that I know are in this church whom I have a relationship with, I know you know this, but I'm going to say this anyway. Keep yourselves sexually pure. In dating, it is so easy to get wrapped up in the relationship and to desire each other physically. And by the way, that desire is not a bad thing. God put that there. Never forget that sex was created by God. It is good, but only in the right context. Keep yourself pure. I'm going to talk to the single men in the room for a minute. Lead in this area. Be mindful of your date's purity. Take steps ahead of time to guard this. Commit to not being alone in a compromising situation. Don't take her back to her house or apartment and go inside. Drop her off at the door and say goodnight. Don't bring her to your house or apartment for any reason. Be careful. Be guarded. And to the ladies in the room, I would say this. If a man pursues you sexually, have the courage to say no and end the date right there. Go home. Why do I say this? Because I want to ruin your fun? No. But because, as I've said, sex is a gift from God, and it's to be experienced in the context of marriage, which is experiencing it at its best. Do it his way. Not to mention, when we don't do it his way, it's a sin. And we don't want to sin against our Savior. Added to that, there are so many consequences that come with sex outside of marriage, and you don't want that. It's not worth it. One final word here. If you've already messed up in that area, repent and embrace the sweet forgiveness of God. There, are no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Sex outside of marriage is as big a sin as any other. And once repented of, it is forgiven and gone. Yes, there may be consequences from that, but your standing before Christ as righteous. Be free of the condemnation 
and commit to start afresh. All that to say, singles, don't waste your singleness. Final point this morning. Singleness is impermanent. Singleness is impermanent. Revelation 19, 5 through 8. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." I cannot wait for this day. I believe it is a day that is coming, a literal day, and this is is a magnificent description of the throne room of heaven. Worship is happening. People are worshiping God in his throne room. It's an awesome scene. Jesus is preparing his marriage to his bride, the church. It says back in verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lord has come and his bride has made herself ready and she's clothed, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We, the church, are the bride of Christ and one day we will be married to the groom, Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate marriage and it is coming. And every single person married in this, in this room, married or single, will one day be a part of the bride of Christ. Dressed bright and pure for the fine linen of the righteous, of the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is amazing. We are presented to Christ in fine linen, bright and pure. The text says the righteous deeds of the saints. Where did we get those righteous deeds? From Christ himself. We stand before Christ clothed in his righteousness so that no matter what we did in this life, no matter how we fail in this life, we look radiant before our groom. Sin is done away with and righteousness shines. This is the picture, the ultimate picture of the gospel here. No sin, all righteousness. A wedding is coming. Singles, a wedding is coming. Married people, A wedding is coming. Singleness does not exist in heaven. We are married to our groom, Jesus Christ. Singleness is impermanent. But can I share something else with you? Marriage is impermanent. Human marriage is impermanent. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 30, he's talking to the Sadducees, and he says, Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, in this context, Jesus is answering the Sadducees, and he's exposing their bad theology, but we get a snapshot of eternity here. We get a snapshot of what it's going to be like. There's not going to be any marriage, not human marriage, not as we know it on this earth. Earthly marriage will be no more. Singleness will be no more. We will all be married to Jesus. And if that sounds strange to you, I want you to take note of this. The deepest, most intimate relationship that we know today is within the context of marriage. 
I said a couple weeks ago in marriage that you can't get away with things in a marriage, maybe for a time, but your selfishness of sin will be exposed in a marriage. The deepest, most intimate human relationship happens in the context of marriage. But the deepest, most intimate relationship you could ever have is your relationship with God. And in the context of heaven, when Christ is visible to us, what better way to express the deepest, most intimate relationship possible than with a wedding? We're married to Christ because it's our deepest, most intimate relationship ever. It's so deep, it's so intimate, it's so perfect, it's a marriage. It's the greatest marriage ever. Do you remember a couple weeks ago how I defined marriage at the start of this series? I said marriage is a covenant created by God between one man and one woman forever. Do you remember that? What's our relationship with Jesus? It's a covenant. I'm going to read for you Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's a bit lengthy, but follow me here. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God promises in Jeremiah 31 that a day is coming when he will make a new covenant. I believe we are in that new covenant as the church, and yet I believe there, are, there is more coming when Christ returns. My point is this. Our relationship with Jesus is a covenant like marriage is a covenant, a deep, binding, intimate covenant. So I say all that to say don't be put off by the language of Scripture when it speaks of our marriage to Jesus. We should be excited about it. It's going to be awesome. One day there will be a marriage celebration like never before and never will be again. And this raises a question in my mind. Will you be there? Will you be at the marriage celebration, the greatest marriage celebration of all time, or will you be separated from God forever? In hell. Where will you be? Do you want to be celebrating with those who've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior? And if so, then I would ask, have you accepted his offer of salvation by grace through faith? You know, throughout this series, I've pointed out something. We're all broken people. Why is marriage so hard? Because we're broken. Why is family, parenting, children so hard? Because we're broken. Why is singleness so hard? Because we're broken. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you know what's, what else is true? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And he died for you, and he died for me, and he died for our sin. 
My sin offends God, but he died for it. He took the penalty for it, and he offers you complete and total forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. Did you know that? There is nothing you can do to earn the favor of God. A lifetime of church attendance does not impress him. Only open confession of your need for Jesus Christ is what God wants to hear. Open confession of your sinfulness and inability to save yourself and full reliance on Christ who saves. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10.9. So let me ask, if you're not sure that you're going to be at the wedding celebration, won't you come to Jesus today? And I'll be around after the service. If anyone has any questions, please come see me. Singleness is impermanent. Now, what do we take away from that truth? This. First, don't elevate the earthly things above the heavenly things. Marriage, children, family, all of these are wonderful. The Bible teaches that these things are good and we should, to an extent, pursue and enjoy them but they are not ultimate things. They are not heavenly things. We just saw marriage is not going to be in heaven. What are heavenly things then? What are the things that we should treat as ultimate things? Christ first. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus first. Pursue Jesus above all. Delight in Jesus above all. Let Jesus take center stage in your heart. That's pursuing heavenly things. But also this. Excuse me. Recognize who your true family is. I'm saying this to everyone. You may or may not have a physical family, but if you're in Christ, God has given you a family. He's given you an everlasting family, his church. Matthew 12, 46 through 50, Jesus' mother and brothers come. They're wanting to speak to him. Do you remember that story? And someone comes and tells Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And what does Jesus say? He says, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And remember, that was said in a context where marriage was far more sacred than it's considered today. This isn't pie-in-the-sky language, okay? This is not feel-good, yes, I'm a part of a family, metaphorically, in the church. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible says. The truth are, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have been adopted into the family of God. Why? Let me ask a question. Why do church hurts feel so bad? Why when there's a major conflict within the church? Why when you've been accused? Why when something has happened between people in the church? Why is it such a deep pain? You know, you can get slighted at work, and that hurts. I'm not denying that, but you can expect that from the world. When you're slighted by someone in the church, that's family. That hurts. It hurts deeply. We are a family, not metaphorically, not surfacely, no, deeply. We are deeply connected in ways stronger than blood. We are connected by one Holy Spirit. 
by one risen Lord and by one loving Father. This, my friends, is your family. And I'm excited to tell you that it extends beyond these walls and beyond the borders of this state, beyond the borders of this country, into all around the world. And that's why, coming back to Isaiah 56.5, that's why he says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. What does the author mean? What is God saying there? That in Christ, you are adopted into a family, into the family of God. And that's the reward. And you might say to me, how do you know that's what he's talking about in Isaiah 5? How do you know that? Just a few chapters back, is a very familiar passage prophesying Jesus' crucifixion. Isaiah 53, the author writes this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although no one had done, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in him. Many of you are familiar with that passage about Jesus. But keep reading. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall see his offspring. What offspring? Jesus was single. Jesus never had any children. What is the author talking about? The offspring that comes by faith in him. You who believe in Jesus are his offspring, which means the point I just made, we're all family. Like it or not, we're all family. So single people in this room, married people in this room, you have been given a family better than sons and daughters. And to ignore the church is to ignore your family. And one day, one day we will be united with our groom and singleness and human marriage will be done away with and eternal bliss and satisfaction and joy will reign forevermore. Praise God. Church, let me just put this in context. We are worshipers first, but we are family. We worship God and we live as a family. Pursue Jesus and enjoy his family. Single people, if God called you to remain as you are with the trials and temptations that come with singleness for the 70 or 80 or however many years that you have on earth, could you endure that? Knowing you have been given Jesus Christ himself and knowing you have been given a great family in Christ and knowing that one day your ultimate marriage is going to happen with all the love and joy and blessing that you could ever desire, could you endure? I hope the answer is yes. But married people, if you remain as you are with all the trials and temptations that come with the married life for the next however long you live, 
Could you endure knowing that you have been given Jesus Christ himself, knowing that you have been given the great family of Christ, and knowing that one day your ultimate marriage is coming with all the love and joy and blessing that you desire forevermore? Could you endure? I hope the answer is yes. I've said this for two weeks now, and I'm going to end the series like this. Singles in the room, young, not so young, Christ is your example. He is the perfect example for husbands. He is the perfect example for wives. He is the perfect example for fathers. He is the perfect example for mothers. He is the perfect example for children. He is the perfect example for singles of all ages. Jesus lived a single life, totally devoted, devoted to the Father. Jesus did not experience the joys of marriage. He did not walk hand in hand with the love of his life. Yet, his life was full and complete because he was solely focused on loving and obeying his father. And here's the beautiful thing. That perfect single life that Jesus lived was lived for you. By embracing Christ, you embrace his righteousness, which means your imperfect life is covered by the righteousness of Christ. He is your example. But note this, he's not the example to live up to because we can't live up to that. He is the example of a life already lived for you. Do you remember what I said to the children in the, in the congregation last week? I said this, the gospel is an exchange. Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. So put your trust in that single person, married person. Put your trust in that and you will see fruit in your life. Look to your Savior who lived a perfect single life and let him shape and mold your heart to be like his. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you rule and you reign on high. You are great, all-powerful, fully in control. Jesus, you lead us down the paths that we're on in this life. You have led some to be married. You have led some to be single. You have a plan for each of us, and your plans are perfect. Lord, grant us the strength to live as we are. For those who are married in this room Grant them the strength to live their married lives in a way that honors you. Lord, for those in this room who are single, grant them, to, grant them the strength to live in such a way that honors you. Help them to battle the trials and temptations that come with singleness. Reveal in your perfect timing if marriage is in their future and protect them from making marriage an idol and from experiencing the deep loneliness that can often come with being single. May they look to you. May they look to you for their satisfaction. And help us all to do that. For I pray in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen.